As the investigation of the Hunter Sherman murders gets longer and longer in the tooth, and with law enforcement having very little luck in closing in on a motive, let alone a suspect, the fear of the case going cold has become palpable for not only law enforcement, but for the victims' families as well. Now, we are going through the investigation that was conducted by the Omaha Police Department with a fine-tooth comb for a very specific reason. So, despite the fact that you should know, without having Googled the case, that ultimately Anthony Garcia is arrested for the Hunter and Sherman murders, hence the title of the season, we need you to understand that there were many people that were looked at. Some were looked at very closely during the early parts of the investigation. But despite all the leads and hunches that are being investigated, they still aren't any closer to an answer as to why it happened. See, when the cops don't have a motive to hang their hat on, the search for a suspect can become rudderless and the investigation can feel as if it's adrift with little or no ability for law enforcement to be able to control the direction in which it's going. So while it's disconcerting to everyone they have not landed on a suspect, the advantage is that it forces them to keep looking, to keep doing the work, to check and recheck leads because, well, they have to. We have seen it far too many times in far too many cases when the cops fall in love with a potential perp that they just stop looking at any other possible suspects completely. They then develop tunnel vision and any further investigation that is done is not geared towards trying to find and rule out other possible suspects. No, the investigation narrows and takes aim singularly at the one individual and all existing time and resources are spent working towards developing the case against the guy. Yeah, that's what I call it, the he's the guy syndrome. And please note that I am using the term the guy with zero gender assignment. So when the cops land on their guy and they feel comfortable enough to let the prosecutor know that they have the guy, the attorneys for the state immediately inquire as to what evidence they have. And it's this precise conversation that takes place that shapes the remainder of the investigation. Look, some cases are easy for the cops to crack. They find the smoking gun evidence that allows them to zero in on a suspect, and the evidence is so strong that they need not look any further. But what about the legion of cases where they don't find these key pieces of evidence? These are the cases that we're talking about here. The Garcia case is one of those cases. It's a case where it was the cops that developed the theory of what they believed happened and why. And then they sold the theory to the county attorney, Don Klein. And even though they were short on evidence at the time of this initial conversation, Klein was all in because it was a narrative that they could run with. And more importantly, sell to a jury. Remember, the best trial attorneys are at their core, master storytellers. If a case is purely circumstantial, believe me when I tell you this, the narrative, the story, is everything. So after the cops sell their narrative to the state and the prosecutor asks what they have uncovered to prove it, the cops let them know what they have. And the state in turn tells the cops exactly what it is they need to make it a prosecutable case. That is the moment in time when tunnel vision takes hold for the cops, meaning they're done looking for anybody else. They're completely 
and totally focused on building the case against the guy. Now, typically the prosecutor at this juncture won't develop tunnel vision because they need to see more evidence. Holes in the case need to be filled. And as the cops ferret out additional potential evidence to close those gaps in the case, well, then the prosecutor's vision becomes more and more myopic. Until finally, they are in lockstep with the cops. They develop the tunnel vision and the cop's guy becomes their guy too. Look, if we're being honest, if they always landed on the right guy, this approach would be fine. But as our prisons sit with far too many innocent people incarcerated, with their lives shattered, this approach should terrify us all. And why is that? Well, because all it takes is for someone we know and love to be in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong cop for law enforcement's crosshairs to become trained on them. And if you're sitting at home or in your car thinking to yourself, well, that would never happen to me or my people because we're law-abiding citizens, I promise you this, that not one of the 2,737 souls that have been exonerated since 1989 thought it could happen to them either. And this number doesn't come close to the number of innocent people that are actually incarcerated. Because if you know anything about the criminal justice system, you know that getting a conviction overturned at the appellate level is hard as hell to accomplish. So most of those stories don't have happy endings. Now at this point, I'll step down off my soapbox, but know this going forward in this season, that it was the state's narrative and not the evidence that led to the jury's final decision. And that should scare the hell out of you because evidence matters. Welcome to Defense Diaries. I'm your host, Bob Mata, and this is episode 11. Evidence matters. We left off last episode with Omaha PD continuing its desperate search to develop a solid suspect in the killings, to no avail. A majority of the prints have come back from the lab with no matches to any of the people that they have focused most of their attention on which includes Kelly, her boyfriend, and Adrian Lepore. The DNA results still have not come back from the lab, and the cops are administering polygraphs to everyone that is willing to submit, many of which are Shirley Sherman's own family members. Kelly availed herself, and so did her boyfriend, and each of them passed, as the examiner found both of their responses to the questions about knowledge of the killings to be truthful. And Bill Hunter, well, he also agreed to take a lie box. His results were inconclusive, but no one believes that he killed his son and Shirley. The cops continue to probe those closest to the victims, and Shirley's family is who they are leaning heavily on, including one of her brothers. Now, this brother's results were determined by the polygraph examiner to be exhibiting deception when he was asked the two relevant questions. So in the eyes of the Omaha PD, this warranted a sit-down, which he was more than happy to accommodate. 
He explained that the entire event of his sister being murdered in cold blood had rocked him to his core emotionally, and that he is still unable to discuss it with law enforcement or anyone else for that matter without becoming emotional, which makes him nothing more than human. Nonetheless, Omaha PD needs to clear him and determine his whereabouts on the day of the killing, as he provided an alibi of sorts, but certainly not one which would be considered rock solid. Reality for the brother is that it sounds as if it was a typical day on the job, doing a bathroom rehab, but there was a gap towards the end of the workday, which Omaha PD feels needs to be accounted for. But at the end of the day, they have a strong feeling that he's not the guy. And finally, based on a call to the tip line, there is a guy that allegedly said something that made a tipster's skin crawl, so much so that she called it in. And that is directly where we are heading as Detective Scott Warner is questioning him to find out just why in the hell he may have said what he said. So, let's dig in. Rob Gerber obviously is not thrilled to have Omaha PD on his doorstep, but nonetheless invites Warner in. And Warner wastes little time in beginning the questioning. So, how long have you been living at the current address, Mr. Gerber? Here? Uh, about three months. What about before here? Uh, I lived over on Lafayette Street for about six months before I moved in here. And before that? I lived on Mayfield Lab for about six months and then 40th and Coming for a few months before that. A lot of moving around, huh? Yeah, it's been tough sledding for me financially for the last bit. I was on South 48th for seven years before that, though. What about work? What do you do for a living? Actually, I'm in between jobs right now, but I've been working for the National Park Services for about nine months as a guide up until I quit around February 14th. Okay, and what about before that? Well, I had a bunch of service industry jobs. Um, Famous Dave's, Olive Garden, Chili's. I just didn't stay at any of those gigs for very long. I get it, but I have to ask... How are you able to pay rent without working? Well, I'm actually a student right now. I'm taking classes at the University of Nebraska-Omaha. Um, but I, I get a disability check from the government. I'm a vet. I served in the Navy for four years as a cryptologist specialist. What is a cryptologist specialist? What is that? It's a code breaker. I had top secret security clearance. Wow, that's pretty interesting. Were you honorably discharged from the military? Well, I was generally discharged under honorable conditions. See, I was stationed over in Japan, and because I had gotten into a couple of fights with other soldiers, one thing led to another, and I had to go. Really? What happened over there? Ah, oh, man, it, it was stupid, but, you know, they both happened at bars, everybody was drunk, and they both had to do with females. Well, that's a shame, Rob. Did you grow up in Omaha? No, I grew up all over the place. Washington, Montana, and then we moved to Nebraska. After I was discharged, I moved back to Nebraska in 95. Just so you know, I'm Native American. My people are from Nesper's tribe in Washington State. Hmm, that's interesting. But let me ask you, I want to know a little bit about your class schedule over at the college. Well... I've got a 10.15 to 11.30 class, 
and a 3 to 4.30 class on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And I take another class on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays from 10 to 11.15. But I have to tell you, I usually don't go to the late class on Tuesday and Thursdays because I have stomach issues. I either have constipation or diarrhea, so I ended up failing that course in one of the other courses for a lack of participation. Warner thinks to himself, well, this guy's being brutally honest so far. He continues the questioning. So let me ask you about your kids. Are you not with the mother? No, actually I got custody of my 14-year-old son a couple of months ago. His mom had gotten into some trouble over in Bellevue, uh, I guess a few months ago. And my kids have different moms. I pick up my daughter on Thursdays at 3.30 and keep her overnights until Saturday. Okay, so you mentioned when I got here that your kids were playing on the Xbox. Do they ever go on Xbox Live? Um, no, they don't. I don't have cable. Well, that requires the internet, sir, not cable. Well, oh, well, I ain't got that either. So you're telling me that you have no way to access the internet here? Yeah, that's right. I, well, I can get on on my phone, but I don't have internet service in the apartment. Okay, fair enough. L let me ask you, have you ever placed an ad to rent your apartment? Um, yeah, back in February, I had some guy named Eric move in for about a month. That didn't last, so then I ran the ad again. And in March, a girl named Jessica moved in with a friend of hers named Monica. That didn't last either. Okay, do you currently have a roommate? No, I don't. Do you have an email address? Gerber supplies him with it and lets Warner know that he's an artist trying to sell paintings on his MySpace account. Uh, okay, Robbie, you just told me you didn't have the internet. Uh, no, no, I, d I don't have the internet, but I have my phone, so I can get my MySpace account through my phone, and I can take pictures of my work and my art and upload that to my MySpace account on my phone. Oh, okay, I, I understand now. So what do you do with your free time when you don't have the kids? Well, I usually go to the bar two or three nights a week, either Dundee Dell or 49er. Sir, do you own a vehicle? Yes, I do. I have a Suzuki Vetra that I bought back in December. I traded in my Acura Integra because I couldn't afford it anymore. Okay, well, what about gyms or fitness clubs? It looks like you work out a bit. Gerber flexes his right bicep and chuckles. Yeah, a little bit, but no, I just work out here in my place. He says as he points to a dumbbell set in the corner of the room. Well, Rob, it appears that you make a little go a long way. Now, I want to ask you, are you good with dates? Meaning, if I ask you what you were doing on a certain date, will you be able to tell me what you were doing? Maybe. I keep a day planner. You want me to go grab it? Yes, please. With that, Gerber gets up and goes into what appears to be his bedroom and returns with two planners, one red one black. Gerber sits back down. Okay, which dates do you need information on? Sir, can you tell me what you were doing on March 13th of this year? Gerber flips through the black planner. Let me see, March 13th. Meanwhile, back at the station on July 1st of 2008, Sergeant Ken Kanger receives a call from a reporter from the Omaha World Herald named Catherine, 
she proceeds to tell Kanger that a friend of a friend who is a medical student at Creighton University and whom she knows knows Bill Hunter matches the composite sketch. She goes on to tell Kanger that she heard that this student had a falling out with the medical school and the medical program last year. Hmm, had a falling out with the whole medical school? Weird. Catherine had heard that this student was pissed. Kanger inquires whether Catherine knows what exactly this friend was pissed about. She tells him she doesn't know. Now, I have to say, at this point, I believe that Dirk, a character from Wes Anderson's classic Rushmore, says it better than I ever could with respect to what kind of friend Catherine is. You're supposed to be his friend. Look, Dirk, I am his friend. Oh, yeah, and with friends like you, who needs friends? Well said, Dirk. Catherine proceeds to give the name of the medical student who has beef with the entire medical school. But so as to not pile on this guy, we will use the pseudonym Al Morgan. Catherine is also able to supply Kanger with Morgan's current address and arms him with the fact that Morgan has a child with a former girlfriend with whom he is currently entangled in a paternity and child support case with. She tells Kanger that she's only mentioning this because she believes that if the detectives handling the case needed Morgan's DNA sample, it's probably available via the paternity case. Catherine is so helpful. Now, we are unsure if Catherine is or was an investigative reporter with the World Herald, but one thing is for certain. She is digging in on Morgan. Kanger listens intently and takes notes as Catherine goes on. She tells him that she's done a little research into Morgan's criminal history and that she came up empty, but that she was able to ascertain his driver's license number and believes that he is currently driving a 2001 silver Honda Civic. Kanger interrupts her and lets her know that the possible suspect was thought to have been driving a Honda CRV, which is a sports utility vehicle as opposed to the Civic, which is a passenger vehicle. Catherine is undeterred. She tells Kanger that if he wants to see pictures of Morgan, that they can be found on a website called friendster.com. Kanger thanks the home sleuth for her potentially valuable information and attempts to terminate the call. But in true Columbo style, Catherine has just one more thing to tell Kanger. She says that her friend who's friends with Morgan is not aware that she is contacting the homicide unit, but she may be able to find a way to get her friend to speak with him if he wants. Kanger notes in his report that Catherine never did give the name of the friend, but did let Kanger know that her friend's mother had just passed away and that the case was unsolved. She didn't elaborate as to whether or not the friend's mother's case was a homicide or some other type of death investigation. But Kanger was getting the vibe that the friend could have some animosity towards a homicide detective because the case remains unsolved. Is that it? Kanger asks. Yes, she thinks so. Kanger thanks her and terminates the call. But not before Catherine lets him know that he can contact her if he has any additional questions. 
Kanger places the phone back in the cradle. Holy shit, Kanger thinks to himself. Now, talk about tunnel vision, relating back to what was discussed in the beginning of the episode. Imagine, if you will, if Catherine was a detective as opposed to a reporter from the World Herald, and she had the incredible power that is afforded to the police in identifying suspects and relaying that information to the state. You can tell from that call to Kanger that she thinks Morgan is the guy. And in a case where there is no forensic evidence and the case is strictly circumstantial, remember that the narrative, the story that's been developed by the state becomes what the jury bases their verdict on, not the evidence. It's not the way that it should be, but it's the way that it is. Now, we aren't going to do this right now, but when we reveal the state's narrative later on with respect to Garcia, we're going to revisit this, and we're going to pull Garcia's name out of the narrative and plug Morgan's name in. And you may be absolutely stunned at just how neatly it fits. Oh, and by the way, Kanker never followed up on this lead, probably because he didn't consider it to be legitimate. It's very interesting how two different people can look at the exact same thing and come away with two completely different interpretations. Welcome to the practice of law. Meanwhile, Officer John Bali has been assigned to head over to the King Science Center, Thomas's former school, to conduct interviews with the janitorial and custodial staff in order to see if anyone has valuable information regarding the murders. Bali arrives at the school at approximately 9 a.m. on July 11th and makes contact with the assistant principal. Bali advises him that he would like to interview the staff. The principal is more than happy to accommodate him and sets Bali up in a conference room. Over the next two hours, one by one, eight staff members are interviewed, and not one of them was personally familiar with Tom Hunter. Although all of them were familiar with the murders as everyone in the school had been talking about them, and, of course, through the media. The general consensus that Bali walked away after all of his interviews with the staff was that none of these folks knew who any of the good kids in the school were. It was the troublemakers that they were all intimately familiar with. And Thomas, well, he was no troublemaker. On a side note, as I read through this report, I couldn't help but be reminded of this great little scene from John Hughes' angsty teen masterpiece, The Breakfast Club. Uh, Carl? What? Can I ask you a question? Sure. How does one become a janitor? You want to be a janitor? No, I just want to know how one becomes a janitor because Andrew here is very interested in pursuing a career in the custodial arts. Oh, really? You guys think I'm just some untouchable peasant, sir? Peon? Yeah. Maybe so. Falling a broom around after like you for the last eight years, I've learned a couple of things. I look through your letters, look through your lockers. I listen to your conversations. You don't know that, but I do. I am the eyes and ears of this institution, my friends. By the way, that clock's 20 minutes fast. The eyes and ears of the institution. 
Indeed. Well played, Carl. Well played. Officer Bali leaves King Science none the wiser of who may have been in the hunter's house on the day of the murders. Back at Gerber's house, Warner is watching as Gerber flips to the 13th of March in the planner and asks him, may I see that? Gerber says, sure, and hands him the book. Warner takes the book and flips to the 11th of March and sees that Rob had a dental appointment with a woman named Lisa at noon and nothing else. On the 12th, there's a notation at noon that just says Wentel. He then flips to the 14th, which indicates that he has to pick up his daughter from school at 3.30 p.m. The 13th of March, the day of the murders, is blank. Warner ponders this for a moment, then looks up from the book and asks Gerber, have you uh, ever been employed as a stripper? Gerber looks a little taken aback. Um, yeah. Back in 2003, I was a male stripper for a company called Midwestern Entertainment. I did that for about three years. And uh, how did you get into that line of business, Rob? Well, uh, I was actually at a Cinco de Mayo parade, and I saw a float with a bunch of male dancers on it, and I thought, hey, uh, I could do that. So the car that was driving in the front of the float had the number for the business on it. So I called, and a woman named Judy ended up hiring me. What were your typical jobs for the company, Rob? Mm, yeah, you know, the usual bachelorette parties at different bars. You know, they had me dress up in different costumes. Hey, I was even a cop, like you. Mm, yeah, not quite, pal, Warner thought to himself. Yeah, that must have been a real good time playing cop. So uh, what else did they have you dress up as? Mm, well, uh, oh yeah, there, there was the businessman. You know, I'd wear a suit and I'd carry a briefcase. Um, you know, the suit was green and tan. It was fun. Green and tan? That doesn't sound very professional, Rob. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I guess it doesn't. Say, Rob, uh, you still happen to have that briefcase laying around? No, uh, it's funny that you asked. Actually, I had to clean the hell out of my apartment about a month ago, maybe a month and a half, because the apartment was infested with cockroaches. I mean, they were everywhere. And I dug that thing up, the briefcase, when I was cleaning, and it was infested too, so I tossed it out along with a bunch of other shit. Okay, Rob. Now, I, I need you to think real hard about the day of March 13th. Do you remember that date specifically? No, I don't. It's just another day in the life of Rob Gerber to me. Well, Rob, here's the thing. You, you see, on that date, there was a double homicide in the Dundee area. Are you aware of that? Oh, yeah. I remember hearing about that. I think I was sitting here with my daughter here when the news broke. I remember that I walked across the hall... I was talking to my neighbor, telling him that he should lock his doors because somebody had been murdered in the neighborhood. That's right, Rob. Do you remember hearing how they were killed? Sneaky, Warner, sneaky. Well, I remember that the lady and a boy were killed. I think they were shot? Wait, is that why you're here? You think that I had something to do with that? Warner doesn't say a word. Rob 
figures it out all on his own. Shit, that is why you're here. No, man, there is no way. I didn't have anything to do with that. Okay, Rob, I believe you, but that's why I need you to think really hard about what you did and where you were on that day so we can cross you off the list. You understand? Oh my God, I swear to you, I honestly can't remember where I was that day, but like most days, I'm guessing I was right here because I definitely remember seeing it on the news that night, so I know I was here at that point. All right, Rob, let's let's take a breath, okay? Now I want to circle back here for a second, because you just stated that you remembered that you were sitting here with your daughter when the news of the murders came on, Rob. Do you remember telling me that just a couple of minutes ago? Yeah. Well, here's the thing. Remember when I was looking through your day planner a few minutes ago? Rob nods his head yes. Well, in your planner, you had written, it is you that writes in here, correct? Rob nods his head again, indicating yes. Well, you wrote that you picked up your daughter on Thursday the 14th at 3.30 after school. Not on the 13th, Rob. The 13th is blank. Rob, looking completely panicked, asks Warner, Can I see that, please? Sure, Rob. Warner hands it to him, and Rob flips through the pages. Yeah, see, here's the thing. It looks like I had my daughter a few extra days the week before, so maybe I didn't have her on that Thursday, but in my mind, I can remember her sitting with me when that story came on the news. Look, I swear to you, I didn't have anything to do with killing those two people. You have to believe me. I want to believe you, Rob. I mean, what reason could I possibly have to hurt those two people? I don't know, Rob. That's why I'm here asking you questions. But look, I believe you. And that's what we're trying to figure out here. But your foggy memory isn't making my job very easy, Rob. Well, I'm sorry, officer. Detective. Sorry, detective. But all my days kind of blend together. (sighs) They all kind of seem like the same day, day after day. Do you know what I mean? No, Rob, I'm sorry. I, I don't really know what you mean. I understand that we both live very different lives. But I have a pretty good idea what I was doing from day to day. Okay, well, what were you doing on March 13th? Warner looks at Rob's face and squints slightly. Well, Rob, if you must know, I was over at the Hunter's home trying to make sense of one of the most brutal crime scenes that I've ever seen. Gerber sits silently as he has no further questions for Warner. Look, I don't want to talk about me, Rob. I want to talk about you. Do you remember having a conversation about the murders with somebody that was interested in renting your apartment at Dundee Dell recently? Maybe. I I don't know. Everybody's been talking about that all the time. Well, Rob, let me be a little bit more specific. Do you recall telling that person at the Dundee Dell that the boy got what he deserved? Gerber stood up suddenly as did Warner. 
There is no way that I ever said that to anybody. And if somebody is telling you that I said that, then they are lying. I would never, ever say that. I have a 14-year-old son and a 10-year-old daughter, for God's sakes. I would never say that. Warner tries to calm Rob's hysteria. Look, Rob, like I said, I believe you. Let's gather ourselves here and try to finish this talk. Then I'll be out of your life. With that, Rob sits back down. Good. Now, again, I need you to think real hard here, Rob. Do you recall meeting someone, a lady at Dundee Dell, in regards to renting your apartment? No, I don't. I mean, I've talked to people about the murders at the Dell, but everyone is talking about it all the time. And not just at the Dell. Everywhere. Rob, I hate to keep pressing this point, but are you sure about that? Because if you're not truthful with me right here, right now, that makes me think that you have something to hide, Rob. And I have to be honest with you, buddy. I can't think of any reason why this young lady would take the time to call the tip line and make up a story about you saying that the boy got what he deserved. It just doesn't make any sense, Rob. Can you help me so that it makes sense? God, I don't know. I guess I remember talking to a white female at the bar and a story about the murders came on the news and I was saying how crazy it was and that it happened right here in our neighborhood. And this girl told me that she had a friend that was a cop who told her that it was a hit on the cleaning lady. But that's it, man. That is the only conversation I've had in a bar with anybody about the killings, and I sure as shit didn't say that that boy got what he deserved. Well, it's good to see that your memory is coming back to you a bit, Rob. So let's take advantage of that. Do you remember telling a woman in the bar that you used to be a stripper and that you used to dress up in a suit and carry a briefcase? I mean, maybe? That's definitely possible. I've used that line in the past when I've been trying to pick up women. I'm 36 years old, for God's sakes. I've got to use everything that I have at my disposal because I ain't as young as I used to be. Rob, I hear you, but I'm as serious as cancer right now, buddy. I need you to be 100% truthful with me right now. Are you telling me that you have no personal knowledge whatsoever about the murders of Shirley Sherman and Thomas Hunter. No, I swear to God, I don't know anything about those killings. Nothing. Okay, in light of that answer, would you be willing to take a polygraph exam where you are being asked those very same questions? Hell yes. I I'll do it right now. I'll do it right now. I'll do whatever I need to cooperate. We're obviously not going to do it now, Rob. I don't have the polygraph machine with me. But tell me this, if I schedule it, will you show up, Rob? Oh my God, yes. I will show up anywhere, anytime, I swear to God to you. I mean, I need you to understand, I'm cooperating here. Well, that's good to know, Rob. That makes me feel a lot better about this conversation. Will that polygraph show any signs of deception in your answers, Rob? Absolutely not. I'm happy to take the lie detector to clear my name. You call me and tell me to be there, I will be there. With that, Warner stands up and walks out of Gerber's house. Not knowing exactly how he feels about this guy's possible involvement in the killings. His gut is telling him he's not the guy. Eh, 
probably did say something like the kid deserved it, but not because he did it or even believed that Thomas deserved it, but because in Gerber's warped mind, he probably thought that would impress certain girls, passing himself off as a bad boy. It takes all kinds, Warner thought to himself as he got into his squad and drove back to the station. After about 15 minutes, Warner arrives back at the police station, gets out of his car, goes to his desk, and opens a file that's entitled Warrants. Contained within are several warrants that he had begun working on earlier, all of which are directed to the three major credit reporting agencies, as they happen to be a very useful tool in helping law enforcement locate certain people, and they can often provide other valuable information. They need to follow up with interviews with Lepore's parents and his ex-girlfriend, Marcella. Rob Gerber needs to be connected to the lie box and the return of the subpoenaed materials from the credit reporting agencies will hopefully help them locate the Russian so they can go and have a chat. Will any of these leads blossom into a suspect? Or will OPD keep spinning their wheels in their search for a killer? Find out this and more on the next episode of Defense Diaries. Before we go, I want to introduce you to one of my favorite pods out there right now. It's called Complicit, and it's more of what you've come to love out of Defense Diaries because it's a deep, deep dive into the tragic missing persons case of Lauren DeMolo. And the hosts, Caitlin and Hillary, are absolutely two of the best creators out there who go directly to the source as they have direct access to Lauren's family and friends. But enough of me talking about the pod. Here's just a taste of what you can expect from the award-winning podcast, Complicit. And please remember to subscribe, follow, rate, and review on your favorite podcast catcher because just like us, Complicit is an indie pod, so we need you all spreading the word. Thanks. Lauren DeMolo vanished without a trace on June 19th. Police called DeMolo's disappearance suspicious. Lauren DeMolo was last seen more than a week ago at her Cape Coral apartment, and police believe she's in danger. Where is Lauren DeMolo? You don't really hear these stories in such a beautiful town. You feel like your whole world is safe. This is a story that needs to be told because this story needs an ending. Her message said, I don't know what to do. I need to get out of this situation. I need help. Maybe somebody really was after her. And I said, the girl you're supposedly in love with and engaged to has not been home and is missing. And you're not going to be there or go looking for her. I said, I got a big problem with all of this. Unexpected twists and turns fuel a community-wide search to bring Lauren home. But Lauren is still missing, and nobody's talking. I do believe she will be found. I really do believe that justice will be served. A lot of people know exactly what happened. There are so many puzzle pieces here that you can't figure out what happened. Someone is responsible. Someone is complicit. I'm not going to stop until I find out what happened to my daughter. I'm Hillary Wadsworth. And I'm Caitlin Boddy. Join us as we seek to find out what really happened to Lauren DeMolo. 
Complicit is now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, shout outs to Team DD. First, as always, to my partner in crime, REP Darren Wood. You're the best in the biz, partner. Love you, love you, suit. To Taras Horoluski and Ryan Gack, who make, mix, master all of our original music. And both these cats have bands with albums on Spotify. So if the funk is your thing, I know it's mine. Check out The Herd and Nasty Snacks on Spotify or wherever you stream your tunes. Also, to Courtney Reese, my brilliant and beautiful daughter, and Alex Carver, please keep crushing the socials and graphics game for us. It makes us feel complete. And to my phenomenal wife, Allie, who is literally holding down the fort while we try to turn this little show into a monster. Thank you so, so much. And I can't wait for y'all to get to hear her roar in season two. She's coming. Y'all better get ready. And to all of our patrons, new and old and those who have taken a break, we love you so, so much. And we've finally started getting some additional content to y'all. And that will continue to build as we grow. But for that good ad-free DD, join our Patreon because it really does help us keep going. And finally, to you, all of our beautiful, dedicated listeners, Thank you to the moon and back for listening and help us promote the show. And trust me, we see you when you recommend us out there on the socials. And we keep a little list for all of our OGs out there. And there will be special days ahead. And just remember, and take this to heart, because I mean it. Without you, I'd just be an old man. Talking about an old case. Talking to you.